Hey everyone, welcome back to the Primate Cast. After the tune, you'll get to hear another origin story, this time from Dr. Ramesh Zimbo Bunratana, on not being a primatologist and, according to him, other incoherent ramblings. Evolution. Communication. Cognition. Conservation. Behavior. Primatology. Primatology. Typically primates. Become the monkey. Well, hello there, everyone, and once again, glad to have you back in the audience for this, the Primate Cast number 64, which is being released on Saturday, March the 5th, 2022. Today's podcast is taken from our International Primatology Lecture Series, Past, Present, and Future Perspectives of the Field. This is the brainchild of Dr. Michael Huffman, and like our normal programming, it's brought to you by SciCasp. Now, the main goal of the lecture series is to share origin stories of experienced practitioners of primatology in its allied fields. To do that, Mike Huffman's invited a revolving door of renowned primatologists to join us on the program and share their own stories with us. Now, the Primate Cast is happy to be able to share these stories right here on the podcast, and we hope you enjoy them as much as we do. Now, unlike our normal interview format, these lectures are being done as part of our SciCasp seminar in science communication. So that's aimed at grad students here at the Primate Research Institute and Wildlife Research Center of Kyoto University. So what you'll hear is actually a lecture from each speaker that was recorded in Zoom and who's generally also showing slides, so there might be some references to visual aids that are not available in podcast format. But for anyone wishing to see the speakers presenting their talks, we invite you to check out the SciCasp YouTube channel, and that's C-I-C-A-S-P. Now, in the third podcast in this lecture series, we hear from Dr. Ramesh Bunratana, who's universally known as Zimbo. Zimbo details his journey in and then out of primatology, with a couple of important messages for the audience. Now, it's clear from the lecture that Zimbo values education, definitely doing things the right way, and offering a roadmap for young students wishing to get into the field. And I think that's what makes him really popular here in the world of Southeast Asian primatology uh, and beyond, uh, where he's really actively involved in various educational and conservation-oriented activities. Zimbo is an associate professor of conservation biology at Mahidol University in Thailand, and has many advisory roles for organizations as diverse as the IUCN Species Survival Commission's Primate Specialist Group, um, the Bukit Mera Orangutan Foundation, and even the Creation Justice Commission of Kota Kinabalu uh, Archdiocese. So he talks about some of these roles and how he's involved in bringing people together for conservation in the region. So we hope you enjoy this episode from our International Primatology Lecture Series, and we'll provide links to this and other lectures in our series in the show notes on the podcast website. So as usual, here's Mike Huffman introducing Zimbo to get us started. Hello, everybody. Thanks for attending. Um, And special thanks to Zimbo or Ramesh Bundatana as as is on his email address. But he likes the name Zimbo. And I think most people around the world know him as Zimbo. So we'll we'll go with that. Want to to make you feel comfortable and, and very welcome. I'm extremely happy that you accepted our invitation. I think you have a lot to offer, and I'm sure that is reflected in all the people who have written and and shown an interest in in your talk today. Um, um, Just as as a a general outline, because um, Zimbo is is very modest and he probably won't talk so much about himself, but he's had a a very extraordinary um, background um, he, he did his bachelor's and his master's 
at um, Punjab University, where he started his primatological career, career studying rhesus monkeys. And then he, um, he did his PhD on um, proboscis monkeys. I, I was going to call them Jimmy Durandi monkeys, but that's a different species, um, on proboscis monkeys in Sabah. Um, but he's, he's much more than a primatologist, as he will tell, you, tell us all today. He's, he's quite a um, conservationist, and he's, he's well-known throughout circles in, in, in Southeast Asia for his conservation work and his, his key efforts with the IUCN in Southeast Asia. Um, he's outstanding in his field. And one other thing that I really appreciate is most of the time when I'm in contact with him, um, he's outstanding somewhere in the field or has just come back from the field. So he's very active in his, his, his work and he, he takes good care of his students and his colleagues. And I think we'll hear more about that um, in the next hour. So I'll hand it over to you, Zimbo, and thank you very much for coming. All right, Krap. greetings from Thailand. Uh, firstly, I would like to thank Mike, Andrew, and CSEP for inviting me to speak to the grad students. Although, honestly, I kind of have mixed feelings about this. The Primate Research Institute of Kyoto University is one of the world's leading establishments in the field of primatology and home to many a great name. Hence, I'm kind of scratching my head as to how I can contribute to the students' learning. Well, since I don't think I can talk intelligently about primatology, therefore I will spend the next 40 minutes or so doing two things. Firstly, an explanation as to why I'm not a primatologist. And secondly, I wish to highlight some pointers and, and issues to consider when studying and practicing primatology. Now, when I go through the first bit, Although I'll be narrating my association and disassociation with primatology, I want you to picture yourselves. I want you to reflect on your studies or your intended studies, your career paths, your personal goals, and your obligations as a primatologist. Now, let's proceed to understanding why I am not a primatologist. A short definition that I can find of the internet of a primatologist is a scientist who studies primates. Well. I have studied primates, that's true. I did my master's on research macaques in India in the mid eighties under the supervision of Christopher James Edwin and on the proboscis monkeys in North Borneo for my PhD. That was in the early nineties. It was the third long-term study on this unique species. The first two long-term studies were by Kerry Yeager in Kalimantan and Elizabeth Bennett in Sarawak. Liz Bennett was also my field supervisor. All right, soon after graduation, I was rather fortunate to be given an amazing opportunity to carry out a pioneering study on another Ordnose colobine, the Tonkin snub-nosed monkey in Vietnam. This species was thought extinct until a rediscovery in 1992. Now, working in the steep cast limestone mountains of North Vietnam, and months of rice and peanuts three times a day was indeed an experience. It also brought about my admiration for my Vietnamese colleagues and those who work and live in such a terrain. By the way, those photos that of the Tonkin Snapnose monkeys in the Geo magazine were the first ever photos of this species in the wild. Then in between my master's and my PhD, and while writing up my doctoral dissertation, I was likewise fortunate to serve as a field assistant to Warren Brockerman, 
carrying out studies and surveys for the La and Pilated Gibbons in Thailand. Warren Brockelman was also my PhD supervisor. Now, besides these species, I have had other exposures to primates, but they were part of the broader biodiversity conservation projects. My other exposure to primates is helping to manage the Asian Primates Journal, a journal of the primate specialist group. I think I've been with this journal for over a decade now. Besides playing the traditional role of a journal, this journal takes on another role, that is developing the capacities of the early career primatologists, be it regarding their science or their written communication. By now, you might have started wondering, doesn't all this make me a primatologist? Well, yes and no. All right, besides studying primates, I also serve as a field assistant to Alan Rabinowitz on his project studying the carnivore community in Western Thailand in the late 80s. Then I carried out my own studies on the Sumatran rhinoceros, Asian elephant, and banteng in North Borneo in the mid-90s. However, now the Sumatran rhinoceros is no longer around. And the populations of Asian elephants and bantings have now dwindled precariously. It deeply saddened me that my findings and recommendations were ignored. Besides studying these mega herbivores, I have also carried out various general wildlife surveys. So did I move away from primatology by studying the mega herbivores? Yes, it was an intentional decision. Why, you may ask? Well, because I did not want to be labeled a primatologist. Now, do not get me wrong. I do enjoy studying primates and primatology is a noble discipline. But I was also interested in studying and conserving other species. And there's a tendency for doors to be closed once people place you in a box. Besides the mega herbivores and several other wildlife surveys, I have gone undercover and carried out investigations into international wildlife and forest crimes. Those photos of hole and sawn timber that you see are just a glimpse into the massive international operation involving many players including corrupted individuals from government agencies across a few countries. These works were not part of my plans to move away from primatology. There were opportunities that were simply there. And probably there was no one mad enough wanting to take up assignments. Anyway, several other opportunities and challenges came along the way. I began working in protected area management and natural resources co-management. I also made my mark as a trainer, carrying out on-the-job training and capacity development of protected area staff and other partners, which included the army, border police, militia, and the indigenous groups. Also for grad students and early professionals. As I build up my experience and expertise, I was frequently hired to provide technical advice to projects and programs associated with hydropower development, policies, laws and legislations, resource use, essentially anything dealing with biodiversity conservation and ecosystem protection, including assessments of the ASEAN Heritage Parks nominations. Now, my story gets somewhat weirder. Despite having no training in the tourism sector and not even any initial thoughts about it, Yet, I have contributed to the development of ecotourism, community-based tourism, and responsible tourism. 
and I have been invited to deliver training workshops. The trainees were mostly from government tourism agencies and businesses wanting to venture into these tourism niches or strengthen their products. I have had participants from ASEAN, Gulf countries, Latin America, and Africa. And the funny bit is that I get invited to give talks on various topics and issues that are somewhat a surprise even to me, including one at the World Spa and Wellbeing Congress. Nevertheless, it was fun giving such talks, especially when someone else pays for my airfares, the fancy hotels and foods and the sightseeing. Something unimaginable for someone who has spent much of his life getting drenched and muddied in the rainforest of Asia. Nevertheless, if you had noticed, there are some common denominators underlying my tourism adventures. Moreover, my venture into tourism is also reinforced by a need to bridge tourism and conservation. It is quite ridiculous to go to conferences on protected areas and conservation, and hear talks about tourism promotion in protected areas as a means to conserve biodiversity and protect ecosystem. From people, who have no idea about product development and marketing. It is equally ridiculous to go to tourism conferences and hear talks from people who think ecotourism comprise elephant rights and monkey feeding. Anyway, if you think dipping my toes in tourism is crazy, then wait till you hear my next adventure. Laudato si, mi signore. Now you must be wondering, what is he talking about? Laudato Si, on the care of our common home, is the second encyclical of Pope Francis. Written in 2015, it carries the Pope's criticisms on consumerism and irresponsible development. He further laments environmental degradation and the climate crisis, and calls on the world's human population to take urgent and unified actions. So how do I fit in? The Franciscan nuns of Kota Kinabalu, perchance, attended a public talk I was giving, and we got to chatting after that. They were tasked to implement actions and activities of Laudato Si. However, there were certain aspects that are beyond their scope. Laudato Si is basically about biodiversity conservation, ecosystem protection, climate emergency, sustainable development, indigenous peoples, livelihoods and food security, adaptation and mitigation, among other things. Those things are right up my alley. So that's how I started working with the Franciscan nuns and the Catholic youths of Sabah. We basically share a common goal. I have the expertise, they have the platform. In addition, the beneficiaries are not only the Catholics, but everyone from all faiths and walks of life. Hence, this is indeed one of the best opportunities that came my way as a conservation practitioner. Moreover, the Franciscan Franciscan nuns are some of the most wondrous people I have ever met. By the way, I'm not a Catholic. But to achieve sustainable conservation, diversity in ethical and cultural outlooks toward nature and human life is strongly encouraged. Therefore, one must promote relationships that respect and enhance diversity of life, regardless of political, economic, or religious ideologies. So you can probably see by now that I'm willing to work with any group of people. Anyway, because of my experience with this work, I introduced just last year, 
a new general education course for the undergrads titled Fates, Ecological Justice and the Tropical Rainforest. It highlights the issues that tropical rainforests and indigenous peoples face and the features of religions and beliefs, both mainstream and indigenous that contribute to biodiversity conservation and human well-being. Now let's get back to what I meant by I'm not a primatologist. So by this definition of a primatologist and this definition of a scientist, plus all the things I'm involved with, I cannot claim to be a true primatologist. Heck, I don't even produce enough research papers as scientists should. But I guess I'm a bit of everything. Hence, a primatologist plus plus. Just as someone who will use whatever means and tools to achieve conservation and human well-being whenever and wherever the opportunities arise. Who knows, I might be your next phantom of the opera or a male model for adult diapers. So what about you? What kind of primatologist do you want to be? Field-based, lab-based, research-based, or conservation-oriented? Well, if you're planning to be a field primatologist, then good luck. Research is just half of it. You spend the other half wet and hungry as a laborer, a cook, clearing trails and rivers, fighting leeches and mosquitoes, or simply trying to stay alive. In 1995, I became famous for the wrong reasons, hosting three malarial strains at the same time. And in 1996, my career as a field scientist came to a temporary halt. By the way, these are nothing compared to what other colleagues have experienced. Nevertheless, a field primatologist is always outstanding. Outstanding in the rains, glaring sun, storms, and so on. Then comes the next question. Does one need to be a primatologist to save primates? No, not necessarily. There are many ways to conserve primates. Good ecotourism or responsible tourism providers are highly successful at spreading awareness and educating the public while simultaneously generating funds for environmental protection. Do you know that these eco-businesses can have more impact than scientific publications in high impact journals? They are apparently more effective in converting people to care for the environment. By the way, some of them have very interesting background. Some were previously white collared professionals who decided to pack it in for lesser income simply because they care for the environment and society. Besides these, be a nature illustrator or photographer. Dao Wan Heng's works capture the beauty of nature and bring life to the animal subjects. His works of art are like looking at the animal versions of Mona Lisa. The photographer, Seth Prudente, has an interesting history. I met him during my second year of my PhD fieldwork. He was then a nature guide. During his free time, he would join me in the field or just come over to the camp for a chat. To his credit, he was intellectually curious asking many questions about the proboscis monkey and other wildlife. And whenever he came across subject matter experts, and now he's quite an expert on Borneo's wildlife. Anyway, after his exposure with international wildlife photographers in his early days as a nature guide, he saved and bought his first professional camera. After that, there was no stopping him. 
Besides being a renowned nature photographer, he also now runs specialized photography trips. He is much sought after by international photographers and filmmakers to facilitate their projects, including big names like Richard Attenborough. So people like him and Da Wan Heng are actively contributing to conservation through their passion. What about you? You wish to be a primatologist? You can. But there are certain obligations, all right? There are certain obligations that you need to fulfill as a primatologist, whether you study in the field, in enclosures, in the labs, you have an obligation to help conserve your study animals and habitats. Now, a lot of people who study primates think they are by default conserving primates. They are not. It is imperative that you highlight the statuses of your study animals, especially those who will be studying primates in the field. Even if your research is focused on, say, social behavior, most readers are aware of the species conservation status only from the IUCN rate list. But the IUCN rate list gives the species status across its global range. We need to have a better understanding at the site level. Some populations may be more critical than the global population, and losing any one of them will have severe ramifications on the species' global status. I have seen so many papers that have failed to do so, or they may give a token mention of the species' global status. Do you realize that these papers are intentionally causing more harm? They tend to give the impression that everything with their study animal is all right. And before you know it, the population has crashed. Some do mention the threats to the species, but not enough. It is not enough just to say habitat loss or hunting. If we are going to conserve the primates, we need to know and understand the type and nature of those threats. For this, I highly recommend using the ICN-CMP Unified Classifications of Threats. This classification is a standard and precise lexicon for biodiversity conservation. It is an effective tool for identifying and classifying the immediate threats to primates and their habitats. Let's take a look at this example. I have highlighted two common threats to primates, agriculture and hunting. But note that while hunting directly impacts the primates, agriculture impacts the primates by putting stress on the primate habitats. Therefore, correctly identifying the threats can effectively guide the prioritization of threats and conservation responses. However, if the drivers of those threats are not identified and addressed, then those threats are very likely to persist. Thus, it also helps in understanding the underlying causes that drive the threats. In this example, climate crisis, failing crops and poverty drives agricultural encroachment into primate habitats. Simultaneously, one driver can drive another or more. Here we have the climate crisis as the underlying cause of failing crops. And failing crops, be it due to, be it due to climate crisis or other reasons, will serve as the drivers of poverty. Thus, identifying and understanding their drivers can better assist in the development of appropriate mitigation measures. Simply put, we need to know the details. So maybe now you understand a bit better why conservation efforts have made little progress. What about data recording and reporting? 
Now, isn't this the norm for primatologists? Yes and no. I'm not talking about faking data. That's pretty clear cut a no-no. I'm talking about the exclusion of vital information. In our pursuit of gathering information on normal behaviors of primates living in their wild natural habitats, there is a chance that we ignore either accidentally or incidentally those ecological variables that can influence the study animal's behavior, especially those that fragment the habitats, such as roads, rails, canals, and power cables. Also, the consequences of this linear infrastructure, such as edge effects, disease transmission, vehicle collision, electrocution, and so on. And even large forested habitats are, in reality, fragments of an even larger former contiguous landscape. So in reality, although the behaviors of the study animals are reported normal, they are normal in response or shaped by those variables. Hence, it is essential to give detailed descriptions of the habitats. Otherwise, readers will be misled into thinking that the behaviors reported are the expected normal. It is also quite funny to see some field researchers collecting data as if they are working in the office. They proceed to the site after sunrise, return to camp for lunch and a siesta, and then return to the site to continue their data collection. It is little wonder that the activity budgets of the study animals are biased. There is a study where this researcher observed his animals only in the mornings and evenings because that's when it's convenient for him to see the study animals. However, his analysis of the activ activity budget was reported as observations from dawn to dusk. And his findings showed that his study animals had a sex life that would put even rabbits to shame. Now, other than that, researchers today are very fortunate to have many modern tools to assist them with their research, such as data loggers, drones, GPSs, GIS, and remote infrared photographic equipment. But careless reliance on such technology can yield erroneous results. I'll give you two examples. There was a researcher who spent the whole day video recording his study animals. Then he would spend hours doing meticulous behavioral observations from those recordings. What's wrong with this, you may ask? Well, most of it should be okay. But there were times when the focal animals' behaviors were triggered by some other individuals or species or events that were outside the camera frame. Hence, without considering these external influences, the researcher erroneously analyzed and interpreted his observations. The second example, unfortunately, is not uncommon. Researchers using GPSs frequently transfer onto maps their own locations instead of the locations of the study animals. It probably, probably does not make much difference if one is within a few meters of the study animals and in a homogeneous environment. But if the study shows that animals are almost permanently sticking to the roads or trails, then something is definitely not, not, not right. Sometimes all you need is a pen and a notebook, a good pair of binoculars, a good pair of eyes, and perseverance. Now, let's take a look at another common issue. 
grad students, young researchers, and early career primatologists are all eager to make their mark, but sometimes a bit over eager. Frequently, I come across papers that say, this is the first study, blah, 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 blah. Well, some are accurately so. Some are ambiguous. Some are downright insulting. And some even avoided citing earlier studies of the same species, the same aspects, or even at the same study sites. So be very specific as to what you mean by the first study. Once published, you have to live with it. On a related note, I'm reminded of a field assistant during my PhD fieldwork. He sort of went around telling people that I was his field assistant. Later, he gave interviews talking about the proboscis monkey study as his own and conveniently left me out of the picture. While on the same issue, I have seen papers that belittle earlier studies, especially of those carried out decades earlier. Yes, you should compare your findings with those of the earlier researchers, but you also have an obligation to postulate why the findings are different or why the earlier studies were flawed, instead of just stating that the earlier researchers were erroneous. Duration, seasonality, methodology are all possible causes. And mind you, these pioneers face a lot of challenges that are not highlight, highlighted in their publications. Little funds, uncharted grounds, hardly any information of the primates to be studied, untested methodology, none of the fancy hardware and software we see today, aggressive poachers and raids by pirates, and so on. These pioneers laid the foundations, and we are all standing on the shoulders of these giants. Likewise, seasoned primatologists also have their obligations to fulfill, which we are all aware of. But there is something I wish to highlight that I'm not happy about. There are among senior scientists that have narcissistic tendencies. Besides being obsessed with themselves, they have made it a vocation to belittle others, in particular towards their junior colleagues and grad students. Some even go to the extent of taking credit for the works of others, sabotaging their proposals, or even to tearing them down. As senior scientists, we are the foundation. We are not to compete with them or be jealous of their works. Instead, we, be, we should be ensuring that they achieve more than us. We should be assisting them towards their goals and take pride and joy in their successes. Now let's look at other obligations. Do acknowledge and highlight the contributions of your local counterparts and field assistants. It will help them along their career paths and their contribution to conservation. Moreover, your research will not be possible without them. Also, confer with them the local sociocultural norms before embarking on any course of action. I know of cases of projects failing because of the researcher's ignorance or arrogance. If you look at the photo on the left, the gentleman in the middle was my local counterpart, and the gentleman on the left was our field assistant. After enduring the joys and pains of fieldwork, we remain great friends today. And if you look at the photo on the right, that gentleman started on my project as my driver. He came with the four-wheel drive I rented for a project I was running in Laos. He was part of the deal. 
Later, he became my field assistant. He was so good that he finally became my trainer assistant. Likewise, we remain good friends today. What about indigenous peoples? Do acknowledge their traditional or ecological knowledge. Their observations are frequently uncannily accurate. Although the same is not necessarily true of their interpretation of the observations, but significantly incorporating their traditional resource use practices into modern species and habitat management systems frequently yield desirable outcomes. A word of caution though, when working in areas where indigenous peoples threaten or impact the primates and their habitats, please make an extra effort to offer justifiable and amicable solutions in your write-ups. Simply stating that these people threaten the primates may result in these already marginalized societies being displaced. Moreover, it can also open up to undesirable consequences, such as an opportunity to some corrupted government-approved resource extraction and mega development projects. To wind up, I have a few takeaway messages to the grad students. You do not have to end up a primatologist just because you study primatology. You can be anything as long as you have the passion and commitment for it. And you can still contribute to primatology. You can be an environmental lawyer, an actor, a filmmaker, a consultant, running a green business or running an NGO, work in a development bank or other international organizations. You may even become a prime minister or president. Man, I would love to see that happen. Or you can be a primatologist plus plus. So no matter what and where you end up doing, your primatology training is still important. Primatology can be a gateway to many other wondrous opportunities, but you have to dare, dare to dream. I'm sure you have always heard people saying, follow your dreams. Well, that's only part of it. Most of us don't even dare to dream. Also, it does not mean that you will have to keep following the same dream throughout your life. With new circumstances and new opportunities come new dreams. Dreams are not destinations, they are journeys. So dare to dream. Thank you. You have been listening to The Primate Cast, a podcast series dedicated to all things primatology and wildlife research, to the conservation of species, and to the dissemination of scientific knowledge. The podcast is brought to you by the Center for International Collaboration and Advanced Studies in Primatology at the Kyoto University Primate Research Institute. Visit us online at theprimatecast.com and follow our social media feeds on Facebook and Twitter at The Primate Cast. <laughs>